Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim wraps up our Songs of Christmas series as we look at Away in a Manger. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. Anyone who's with us for the first time, my name's Tim. I'm, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, I have memories from when I was a kid of Christmas worship services. And so the, that, you would, um, that you would give us this day and that we could worship together, I'm, I'm certain that for some, especially our little ones, uh, this may be one of those foundational moments. And so we're really we're grateful for that. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to study once again the story found in Luke chapter 2. It's the Christmas story. Uh, I say again because we have been looking at this story for the last several weeks, unpacking its layers, and um, we're going to kind of try to put a bow on all of that this morning. Um, but I, I was trying to think about how do, you, how do you recap all the things we went through? We've, we've talked about a lot, a lot of history, a lot of context, a lot of stuff. How do we recap all of that? And I thought, you know, what might be fun on Christmas Eve is let's play a little game as a way of recap. If you're new with us, um, I don't expect you to know all this. Uh, this is stuff we've covered. And, uh, but if you know more than we do, then we will be embarrassed. So uh, let's, see, let's see how well we've been paying attention. Uh, okay, a couple questions. Question number one. Jesus is first visited by shepherds. Contextually, shepherds were most often A, poor, B, young, C, female, D, all of the above. The correct answer is D. The correct answer is D. I know, I know. Every movie, all the cards, a lot. Like it's, uh, shepherds always have beards and hairy legs. Uh, contextually, just not the way it was then or to this day in Bedouin camps. It's often uh, the young who are shepherds and they're often the poor community who are shepherds. So think like King David was a shepherd when he was a boy. That's par for the course. And at some point, the boys would go on and learn their father's trade, and the, the young girls would be left alone to care for the sheep. And so it's often a job of young girls. Um, good chance that the first witnesses were young girls. Uh, the first witnesses of the resurrection will also be female. I find that interesting. Um, my daughter this year was a shepherd in her school play, and I was really excited because it's like, I'm going to be a shepherd. And then they gave her a beard. And I'm like, no, you got it right. Don't give her a beard. Okay. Uh, so number one, uh, who got D? Who got it right? All right. All right. Uh, number two, how many wise men came to see Jesus? Is the answer A, 3, B, 6, C, 9, D, 12? It's a trick question. Yes. Uh, it, is, it doesn't say. The correct answer is it doesn't say. What we know from the story is there are three presents given to Jesus. So there may have been three wise men, but uh, there may be far more. We just don't know. The story doesn't tell us. It just tells us how many gifts were given. Okay. Uh, so far, we're two for two over here. Um, yes. All right. Number three. What, which animals does the Bible say were present at, the, at Jesus' birth? Is it A, cows, sheep, do, cows, sheep, goats? B, cows, donkeys, goats? C, sheep and goats only? D, miscellaneous barnyard animals? Or E, none of the above? Uh, 
The answer is E. E. None of the above, or at least uh, the Bible never mentions animals. It might have been C, it might have been A, we don't know. Bible doesn't mention the animals. It's cute addition to the story. Jesus is placed in a, uh, in a manger, which is where sheep would have drank out of. Uh, and so there's a chant, and shepherds visited, so there's a chance they brought their sheep, but we don't know. Um, and Bible never mentions animals. It also never mentions sick drum solos. Doesn't, no, no mention. <laughs> Four. Four. Uh, how did Mary and Joseph get from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Is it A, a donkey, B, a camel, C, they both walked, D, Joseph walked, and Mary rode a donkey? If you, some of you are getting the game now. It doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us. We have no idea. I'm guessing it wasn't a camel because that would be unfair to pregnant women. But uh, it doesn't say, it doesn't say. Number five, <laughs> if you know the game, if you're catching the game. Uh, number five, how many angels spoke to the shepherds? Is it A, one. <laughs> High five. B, three. C, 1,000. D, 10,000. And the correct answer is? It doesn't say. Okay, number six. <laughs> what? What does the Bible have the innkeeper saying to Mary and Joseph? A, there's no room at the inn. B, no room, but I have a stable for you can use. C, both A and B. D, try the cave with a manger around the corner. The correct answer is there is no innkeeper or inn mentioned in the Bible. I know, I know. What do you do with that? Finally. Okay, so those who said, before we put the question up, uh, who's got them all so far? Anyone? Okay. This is the, this is the, the, this, this one. Okay. This is going to be tough. Okay. Now, finally, true or false. Taylor Swift is dating the tight end who has the most <laughs> touchdowns in the NFL. False. Taylor Swift is not dating Sam Laporta, the rookie to join Lion. <laughs> not in the Bible. I do expect us to know this. Okay. Um, Anyway, uh, it's Christmas Eve. Uh, we've been, we have been counting down to this day for several weeks now. As a church, we've been reviewing the stories. And really, if, you, if you've been with us for the last four or five weeks, we have been looking at all of the characters around the story. So we talked about the shepherds. We talked about the magi. We talked about that, that megalomaniac, King Herod, uh, this power trip, King Herod. We talked about uh, Caesar Augustus, spent a lot of time on deep history on Caesar Augustus. We looked at all these characters because they provide for us the backdrop to the Christmas story. Understanding a bit about them helps us to understand a little bit about the world Jesus was stepping into. Um, but today what I want to do is, uh, in the few minutes we have together, is I want to shift the spotlight away from the backdrop to the manger itself. Um, we've been looking at the songs of Christmas, and uh, there's a song we just sang, Away in a Manger, uh, because this is where the whole story has been headed. Uh, this is really what Matthew and Luke, the two authors who tell us this Christmas story, they really are focused on is what is happening, who is this baby, and how did this baby uh, impact the social and political world of his day, and why does that matter to us 2,000 years later in a totally different world. So what we've been doing is uh, for the last few weeks is we've been laying out the pieces like a puzzle. 
And what I want to try to do this morning together is to take those pieces and put them together and ask the question, what is this story all about? So uh, I believe um, that this is the greatest, at least the beginning of the greatest love story that's ever been told. And so let's read through the story together and make some comments along the way. Uh, Luke 2, verse 1. Here we go. Uh, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. We'll pause there. Okay, we're given piece number one of our uh, biblical story, Christmas story puzzle. Um, We are told, Luke tells us that this is the Roman world, and that under the Roman world, uh, Caesar Augustus, the emperor, is conducting a census. Why does Luke start his story there? Why tell us about a census? Why does this detail matter to us? Uh, Last couple weeks, we've been looking at a map. Uh, This is a map of the Roman Empire. Uh, The Roman Empire under the first emperor, Caesar Augustus, extends all the way from Britain to India, uh, and it's near its height of its peak. Uh, The Roman Empire at the time of Jesus was massive. They had the largest military the world has ever seen. They had 250,000 miles of roads that they put in to move the military up and down. The question we left hanging, though, is how? How does Caesar Augustus from Rome build, a, uh, build an empire this large with roads and armies that can take, not just take over the world, but police the world? How do you do it? How do we do it? How do we build our empire? How do we build our roads? Taxes. The answer is, the correct answer is, Taxes. Uh, You have opinions on taxes, but that is the correct answer. Um, Now, uh, the way so if the way you're going to build this empire is you're going to tax the people. That's how you're going to get the money to 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 spend to build the empire. How do you know who to tax? You don't know these people in their world living over here in Israel. How do you do it? Somehow you have to count them. Uh, Another way of saying I'm going to count the people is I'm going to conduct a census. So the Bible begins with a census. It takes a lot of money to keep a Roman military on the ground policing the world. Uh, It takes a lot of money to keep the machine that is Rome humming. Uh, Experts believe that at the time of Jesus, the average Jewish person would have been taxed under triple taxation. She'd be taxed three times. Uh, and it would be, it would, together, it would add up to about 70 to 90% of your income. So every April comes along, 80% goes to Rome. That's where the story begins. Uh, so uh, Jesus' world was known as the Roman world. The Roman world was run by taxes. Uh, how do you collect taxes? You got to do a census because Caesar needs to keep the thing running. That's, that's piece number one of our puzzle. Second piece of our puzzle, this one has to do with family. Uh, Let's pick the story back up in verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in line of David. So Luke tells us that Joseph is from where? 
He's from the good answer. That's right. Uh, and, and which city is connected to King David? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. But Joseph's not in Bethlehem. Jo- you're, you're crushing it. Joseph is where? Nazareth. Joseph is in Nazareth. Now, to help you see that on a map, Bethlehem, here, uh, right outside of Jerusalem. Nazareth, nine or 70 miles north of Bethlehem. Raising the question, why is he so far away from his family? Now, let's try an experiment. Um, show of hands. Who bought a house in the last 10 years? Okay, a number of you bought a house in the last 10 years. Uh, how many of you who bought a house, how many of you bought that house be, for some reason because of your family? So either your kids had grown up and had moved out, and so you're going to downsize, or maybe more likely you had, like we're starting a family, and your family's growing, and we need a little more space for our family. Who did it because of family? Okay, third question. Those of you who bought a house who did it because of family, How many of you did it, bought a new house, because you needed enough space for not just your, like, nuclear family, but your uh, brother's wife and kids, and your cousin Eddie and his crazy kids, and, uh, uh, and how many of you bought a new house because you were sick of sharing a room with grandma? Okay, so our world is very different, not better, not worse, just different than first century Israel. Uh, When we think of house and when we think of family, most of us, uh, I married an Italian, so when they think of family, they think of like the the whole extended family plus the mob. But uh, (laughs) most of us, when we think family, we think our nuclear family And we often, when we think our house, most of us have an independent house that houses our nuclear family. Not better, not worse, but very different than the world of Jesus. Jesus' world, you would live in a kind of house known as an insula. Uh, The word insula means island. Um, Often you'd have a, a large central courtyard, and then you'd have these smaller rooms off of the large courtyard, and every family system would kind of have one of the rooms, almost like a hotel with a central, central courtyard. Let me show you an uh, artist rendition. Uh, this is an insula. You would have a communal space, and you'd have each have a room on the house. This, this is the world of Jesus. By the way, when Jesus says, uh, I am going to prepare a room for you, uh, in my Father's house there are many rooms, I am going to prepare a space for you, and I'll take you with me. You know that right, right before crucifixion? The picture is of an insula. I'll build you a room on dad's house, God the father's house. Okay, so this is the the family system. Now, uh, at the time of Jesus. Now, it would be you, your kids or your parents, uh, your grandparents, if you had them, uh, if they were still alive, uh, your uh, cousins, your, your whole extended family, 40 to 60 people, many insulas were, all under one roof. You don't leave the family insula. You have everything you need within the family insula. You don't leave the family insula. Uh, To leave the family insula was more than just at like 18, I'm going to go buy my own house. It was, in many ways, culturally read as, you are abandoning the family. So think about the story of the prodigal son, if you know that story. Um, The scandal of the story is this son thinks he can leave the insula. That's scandalous. 
So Joseph, 70 miles north of the rest of his family, he's got to come down for the census. We should be asking the question, why is Joseph so far from his insula? Why is he so far away from home? Okay, that's piece number two. Piece number three has to do with work. I want to propose a theory to you. I propose to you that the reason Joseph isn't, is so far away from, from his family has to do with work. I propose to you he needed to move there um, because he needed a job. Now, let me show you the map again. And I added a city to the map, the city of Sepphoris. This is where Joseph's from. But right next to Sepphoris, about two and a half, three and a half miles, uh, depending on how you count, depending on how you take, uh, there is a city called Sepphoris. Why do you care? In the year 4 BC, the people of Sepphoris, Sepphoris, by the way, sits right along what is known as the Jezreel Valley, uh, one of the only flat parts in Israel where you can build a road. It's the, the east-west road runs right through Sepphoris. It's good real estate. The people in 4 BC, the, the Jewish people, didn't like the Romans. They didn't like that they were marching their troops down their street. So they decided to host a rebellion. We're going to take our country back. And the Romans absolutely decimated them, burned the city to the ground, destroyed Sepphoris. But the real estate was really good. So Herod said, the king said, I'm going to rebuild Sepphoris. And it was a major, major building project. Uh, Sepphoris, I'm going to show you some pictures. Um, colonnaded roads, looks very Roman, marble colonnaded roads. Uh, we have houses all off the sides, really nice Greco-Roman houses. Uh, we've got a well-preserved theater. And then in the center of, the, of Sepphoris, there is a castle that Herod built himself. This is his home when he's in Sepphoris. Hot tubs, or not a hot tub, uh, pools, steam rooms in his house. And he even, even the floors of his house, this is mosaic tile. These are all individually cut pieces of glass. Uh, this is known as the Mona Lisa of the Galilee. This predates the Mona Lisa. Um, by a lot of time. Uh, and this was on Herod's floors. Now, why do you care? Well, this is about two and a half miles from Nazareth. Joseph, let's test your Bible knowledge. Joseph, Jesus' dad, uh, Joseph is what by trade? A carpenter. Carpenter. Joseph is a carpenter, and, and that's the right answer. Joseph is a carpenter by trade. Except... The New Testament's written in Greek, and the Greek would use a different word. It doesn't use the word carpenter. That's our translation. The Greek uses the word tekton, T-E-K-T-O-N, tekton. Tekton literally doesn't mean carpenter. It means builder. So how do we get carpenter? Well, the first English translation of the New Testament was the King James Version. It was British. And the Brits looked around, and they said, well, what do builders build with? And they said, well, builders build with wood. So Jesus is a carpenter. He builds with wood. Except first century Israel, you don't build predominantly with wood. There's some wood, but by and large, if you were a builder, you work with what? Stone. Stone. Most likely, and by the way, 
Think about Jesus as a stonemason and read through some of the things he says and some of the things his disciples will say, like the, the, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It, all, like, it makes sense when you understand Jesus most likely grew up in the family of a stonemason. Uh, he built with stones. Now, why does that matter? Because if I were to take you to Nazareth today, uh, their archaeologists can't really locate much from ancient Nazareth. There's not much there. Uh, local tour guides up in Nazareth will say, well, if you give them the right money, they'll show you things and say they're things, but they're not actually things. Uh, they, we really can't find ancient Nazareth. There's not much there. Their theory for this is it's most likely because Nazareth was a pop-up town uh, built by builders who were working on Sepphoris, on the rebuilding project. In fact, one of the only things we found is an ancient stone quarry dating from the time of Jesus, uh, about two miles away from Sepphoris. Does Joseph move away from home because he needs a job? And if you were looking for a job as a builder in the first century and you have a massive building project happening in Sepphoris, do you move to Nazareth, which is like a pop-up town of builders? Seems to be, this makes a lot of sense. Now, this leads to a problem. Here's our problem. Herod, um, there's, there's no such thing as people who are all good or all bad, right? We know this. But for the sake of getting us out before the Lions game. Good guy or bad guy, Herod? Bad guy, bad guy. Herod represents the empire. He represents the enemy. He represents evil in many ways, tries to kill the babies, right? Like he's bad guy. Why is a good Jewish boy working to build the empire, the city of Herod? That's a question I propose to you. That brings up our fourth crucial piece of our Christmas puzzle. This one has to do with poverty. Poverty. Uh, let me propose to you that the reason Joseph moved 70 miles north for work is because he is most likely too poor to stay in Bethlehem. He needs the work to survive. Now, where do I come up with this idea? The text tells us he's poor. Um, how does it tell us? If you drop down in the story just a few verses, Luke 2, verse 22, we read this. It seems like a throwaway detail, but it includes some really important stuff. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves or two young pigeons? So when Jesus is born, his parent, Mary and Joseph take him to the temple to consecrate him, to offer a sacrifice. And in keeping with the law, they offer some birds. What's the law? That's the question we got to ask. What's the law? What law are they trying to keep? The answer, if you've got a Bible, you should have a footnote, so it'll tell you where the law is. I'll help. Uh, it's Leviticus chapter 12. Here's the law. Verse 6. 
When the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or dove for a sin offering. But if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for the burnt offering and the other for the sin offering. So all parents, by the law, are, if you could afford it, you're supposed to give a what? A lamb. Does Mary and, do Mary and Joseph bring a lamb? No. If you can't afford a lamb, the law says, that's okay, it's okay. Bring instead two pairs of birds. What do Mary and Joseph bring? Because they couldn't afford a lamb. They couldn't afford a lamb. Why can't they afford a lamb? Because apparently they're poor. By the way, um, you see how the pieces fit together? Uh, Joseph moves away from his family. Why? For work. And why does he need to work? Because he's poor. And why is he poor? Because the Romans are in charge. And what are the Romans doing? They're trying to collect taxes. And how do you collect taxes? You run a census. You see how it all kind of fits together. Um, by the way, uh, have you ever noticed that in almost every picture of the Christmas story, Mary is on a donkey, right? Have you noticed this? Like she's always on a donkey. Joseph's often walking beside her, but Mary is on a donkey. Uh, I promise you that if she cannot afford a lamb for the sacrifice, there is no way she's going to splurge on a donkey. It's just not going to happen. This would be like, uh, like you buying a brand new Ferrari and then not helping someone next door who's in need. It's just like scandalous. You wouldn't rob God like this. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do it. We put Mary on a donkey because it's uncomfortable for us to think about a nine-month pregnant girl walking through the desert. That's uncomfortable. So let's put her on a donkey. It makes it a little easier. It gets worse. Um, Luke tells us, uh, knows what Luke tells us next. Uh, this is where things get scandalous. This next piece has to do with pregnant girlfriends. Verse 5. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, we know the backstory here, but this is scandalous. Without that knowledge of the backstory, this is scandalous. They're not married yet. She's pregnant. Even in our day and age, um, some people would gasp at that. But in a first century, pious, family-centered culture, this is scandalous. How will the family respond? Which leads us to our last piece of the puzzle, rejection. Look at verse 6. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. There was no guest room in the entire insula available for them. Uh, now, notice it says guest room. Uh, I grew up um, with the, the same language many of you did, which is there's no room in the inn. Uh, and so my mental model, maybe some of you have the same mental model, um, but growing up, I heard this story every Christmas, and m my assumption was, okay, uh, everyone's in town for the census, everyone's coming back to Bethlehem, and all of the hotels are booked. And I'm sorry, you got there too late, Joseph. You should have hustled. You missed out. Uh, you got there too late. We have no room, but we'll make room. Here's where the animals stay. You can stay with the animals. Uh, it's the best we can do. The hotels are full. 
But that's not the word. There is a word for hotel in the Bible. It's, it shows up in the story of the Good Samaritan, that word. Um, but this word is a different word. It's the word kataluma in the New Testament. It literally means guest room, as in room on someone's house. Okay. Who lives in Bethlehem? Whose house is in Bethlehem? Who's in Salah? Joseph's family's in Salah. Do you see the scandal? There's no guest room in the entire insula available for you. Now, I propose to you, it's not because everyone else got there first. I propose to you that most likely the reason there's no guest room available for Mary and Joseph is because they chose not to have any guest room available to Mary and Joseph. Because this is scandalous. You show up to our house with a pregnant girl? You bring that shame on our whole family system? There's no, you may sleep with the animals because that's how you're behaving. Feel the scandal? I propose to you, the reason there's no room is not because Uncle Carl got there first and called dibs <laughs> or licked all the furniture, whatever Uncle Carl does. Uh, even in our culture, that's not, like we're not known for our hospitality as Americans, um, but even in our culture, that's not like, that's our highest value. And theirs it was. Even we, if somebody shows up to our door, just about anyone, uh, nine months pregnant, we're going to find space somewhere in the house, somewhere. We'll find a space somewhere in the house for a nine-month pregnant girl. Unless something about this girl was so shocking, so gross, so offensive to the family that they said, you can sleep in with the animals. And I propose to you, that's exactly what's going on in the story. And the shocking thing is that the scriptures repeat again and again and again that God chose to come this way. There's lots of ways he could have come, but he chose to come this way. I would say one of the biggest problems many um, have with the faith, and this is through now years of being a pastor and hearing stories of people just struggling to come into church. Uh, one of the biggest problems people have with the faith is uh, we'll say things like, God, you have no idea what it's like down here. Like, it, God, if God is real, then God has no clue what life is actually like. He's this distant, remote, uh, unconcerning, disconnected. But God has no clue what it's actually like to try to live this life, this world. And I would say to them, read the Christmas story. Uh, the Christmas story is God's beautiful way of, of answering the question, God, do you know what it's like with, yeah, I know what it's like. Christmas is God's way of saying, I, I've walked in your shoes. I felt rejected. I felt that pain. I felt the pain of a family who doesn't see me, doesn't know me, doesn't understand, doesn't ask good questions of me. I felt the pain of loneliness, of heartache, of people who always, the answer to Am I welcome here should always be yes, but from these people, but they say, no, I felt that. I've been there. And again, the shocking thing in the scriptures is that the scriptures are clear. God chooses to come this way. See, I would uh, say that this is why it's so important that in our attempts to honor God um, by making Christmas really pretty, we don't accidentally miss the point. The whole point is that God loves us so much, his 
children so much that he would choose to leave heaven to be born amongst six inches of manure for you. I've, I've stood in, um, I mean, it's, I've stood amongst the sheep in Israel, and you know what it smells like next to, to mangers and in the caves? You know what it smells like? Not good. <laughs> Not good. It's, there's flies. It's hot. It stinks. And I propose to you that's the whole point. The prettier we make Christmas, the more risky we can get to accidentally, not intentionally, but accidentally missing the whole point. As pretty as this is, and it is really pretty, um, to decorate with trees and lights, and we should. It's beautiful. It, it sets the tone. But what we can, if we really wanted an authentic first century Christmas experience, we wouldn't decorate with trees. We would decorate with manure. That's unsanitary, so I've been told. <laughs> but I think that's the point. Like, life isn't sanitary. Is it? Is yours? Is any of ours? Like, is, is our life perfect? The point of the story is that God leaves perfection to be born amongst that which is insanitary and to come to them again and again and say, it's okay. It's okay. And the prettier we make it, the more we can, if we're not careful, we can miss it. Uh, Christmas is like this divine, uh, your mess, no matter how messy it is, isn't too messy for God's love. No matter how messy. Christmas is God's, I know what it's like. Um, some of you, uh, you felt the story in really personal ways. You have a family who, uh, they don't have room for you. Something happened and you don't have room, whether that's actually been said to you or every time you're there, it just, they make sure you know, we don't have room for you here. Christmas is God's way of saying, I know what that's like. Uh, there are people, I'm sure people in this room, you have a reputation that you, you cannot shake. Uh, 30 years later, Jesus would have people come to him and say, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Uh, there's a reputation that you carry around and every Christmas, uh, your aunt's going to bring up that thing you did when you were a teenager, and it's like, there you go again. You can't outlive the thing you did. Some of you, uh, you have been pushed to the outside, and you have been made to feel you're not welcome here. And I would say that Christmas comes rushing in on the scene as God's great declaration that I understand what that's like. And the people Jesus will go to throughout his ministry are the people who feel like they've been kicked out, shoved to the curb again and again and again. Even those who have messed up bad. Like so bad that like even if other people will forgive you, you cannot let it go to forgive yourself. And Christmas comes rushing on the scene and restoring and redeeming people again and again. Jesus' ministry is to people who feel like they have nothing left worth redeeming and giving fresh starts again and again and again. Oh, there's a difference between pretty and beauty. You know this, right? Beauty is when you can look at something and see the life and the joy and the wonder in the midst of the pain and the heartache. Pretty is when you cover the pain and the heartache, you put a filter over it. Beauty is when you see God's grace and love and joy in the middle of it. Pretty is when you try to cover it and just shine it up. 
What has happened to the Christmas story, I'm afraid, in many circles, is we have tried to make the Christmas story pretty. We put Mary on a donkey, because I can't imagine putting a pregnant woman walking. We put Mary on a donkey, we put fresh hay in the manger, because we don't want to put manure in the manger. Because like, we, we cover up the pain and the shame of the story. But I think the true power of the story is not in the pretty, it's in the beauty that God would choose to enter into that circumstance, that which was not sanitary. And in that scene, God came bursting in and saying, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Uh, Today and tomorrow, especially, but every day, but especially today and tomorrow, we get to choose what we focus on. Um, There's a lot that uh, we can get lost in the pretty, like how pretty is our house? Is it clean enough for everybody to come over? And we can get lost in that. Um, or we can choose to look for the beauty in the midst of the bleh, right? Like in the midst of it all. To see the beauty in the midst of the kids who didn't get enough sleep and we hopped them up on sugar from pancakes and they're melting down. But there's still joy there. Um, they've been counting down. Uh, in the midst of the laughter of your favorite people, even though they tell the same stories for the last 30 years and you have that family member who passes gas at the table. These are your people. We love them. Uh, uh, the, the moment where the, the Christmas wrapping has been ripped off, like right after that, like there's now shrapnel of Christmas all over your house. And the kids finally realize a dopamine hit is gone and there's no more presents left. And now they're crying. And you're saying, we bought you all the toys. Or two hours later, they're saying, I'm bored. <laughs> you can choose to say, I, what, or you can say, you know what? I cannot believe God trusted me with one of those little kids. Um, what we're going to do as a family today is uh, we're going to watch some lions and then secure our playoff. Uh, and then we are going to put pajamas on and make some hot chocolate. And we are going to listen to Keith Morrison read us uh, the night before Christmas, because that's awesome. Um, and uh, we are going to put some carrots out and some cookies out and some milk. And, uh, and we are going to celebrate. And I hope, I, I hope you have an opportunity um, to gather with loved ones. Uh, Christmas is one of those days where I hate to hear that people spent it alone. Um, I really hope you have some friends, family, loved ones, some community. Uh, if you don't, let us know. We'd love to pair you up. But um, this is a day where we get to be reminded that somehow in the midst of all of our unsanitary mess, God still chose to love us. That's good news. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we are so grateful that... Uh, um, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we are grateful that it wasn't um, because we did anything to earn this. We didn't have to memorize the right stuff, repeat the right phrases. Uh, Lord, we did not have to live the perfect life for you to love us, but you loved us first, even in the lowest of our lows. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we come into the Christmas day today and tomorrow, Lord, we pray that you would fill it with magic and wonder and awe as though we were children again. Jesus, we love you, and we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. 
For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. On Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 9 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.